Well, let's pray one more time together before we begin. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You are the God of triumph. We thank You, Lord, that even though in our lives today it may not appear as if Christ is seated at the right hand of power, it may not appear that we are seated with Him on His throne, it may not appear that all things are put in subjection under His feet, but Your Word declares it to be so. And so, Lord, we just pray today that You would encourage us as we do what Hebrews is telling us to do and go back and look at the examples of old and ponder their conduct and the result of their faith. Lord, we pray that You would help us to imitate the principles that are found in the Old Testament saints that though we may not be going to war with any Philistines anytime soon, we do have a warfare nonetheless. And so help us, Father. Give us strength for the fight. Strengthen us, Lord, we pray. And give us perspective which only comes through having an eternal perspective, a spiritual perspective that can only be imparted by the grace of God and by the Spirit of the living God. And so we pray, O God, that by Your Spirit You would help us to see the war that we are in and at the same time help us to understand that You have set before us great and precious promises and help us, O Lord, never to throw away our reward. And so God, we ask for Your strength now. We pray for Your help. Lead us in this time. May You be pleased with the preaching. May You be pleased with our worship. All of this, Lord, is for You. And we pray that You would be glorified in everything that we say and do. You be the center. You be the, you be the focus. And You be the teacher. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, we come to really the final section of chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews. And we have a few more sermons that we are going to uh, be hearing uh, out of this chapter. Uh, Two more uh, that are set in front of us in the present context here and what really can be broken up into a couple of different parts. But I'm going to focus on the concept of overcoming. And so today I want to talk about overcoming our adversaries, obviously by faith by faith. Because that's really what's going to be set in front of us here is examples and a legacy of those who overcame by faith and story after story and example after example, individual after individual of great feats of faith, great remarkable feats of faith and all of that for the glory of God. Now, I want you to see that this section here from verses 32 all the way down to verse 38, broken up into two different sections, really. Uh, Going all the way down to verse 34 is what we can call overcoming our adversaries by faith. 
And then, beginning in verse 35, the author then launches into a section where he really begins to focus on the sufferings of the people of God all the way to the point of the people of God succumbing to the brutality of persecution and remaining faithful even to the point of martyrdom. So the author here, no, um, you know, there's no delusions of grandeur here for the author of Hebrews. He knows that not every story ends with the righteous triumphing in this life, but that some, in fact, met the edge of the sword. Some, in fact, were imprisoned, were stoned to death, were sawn in half. And that is absolutely true today. That we have remarkable feats of faith that we can talk about. Um, there is, a, uh, there is a, a, a series of missionary videos by a gentleman by the name of uh, Kessie who is... Um, uh, really has traveled all over the world that are called Letters from the Front. If you've ever looked at it, I uh, bought those videos long ago from Westminster Seminary. And uh, this gentleman goes around uh, to uh, all over the missionary world, uh, I mean, all over the world doing missionary activity. And he has incredible stories of how he overcame this setback and this obstacle and, and, and this situation with the government and this hazardous, you know, ordeal and travel. But at the same time, there are other missionaries who have met uh, the very brunt of persecution. Um, Right now, our brothers and sisters are being slaughtered around the world for their faith. In Africa, in the Middle East, in India, in Asia, our brothers and sisters are being slaughtered simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. I may have shared this with you, but a good friend of mine who does a lot of ministry in Africa and really all over the, the world, but he sent me pictures of his friends of a church in the Congo uh, who had been butchered to death by Muslims. And uh, he, he literally knew these people as well as you and I know each other, as well as he would have come here and visited us. And he gave me, you know, he sent me an email and these were difficult pictures to look at, but it was a village full of his friends that he had ministered with for years when the Muslims came in with machetes and literally cut everybody into pieces. It's not a joke. We live in a world, and we are very sheltered here in America to a large degree. We are greatly sheltered to the reality of persecution, and we are very blessed. It ought to make us the most grateful people in the world. Remarkably, when I visited Africa, was able to minister to the Sudanese refugees many years ago, um, what I found is that these people were all persecuted and they were the most grateful people in the world. Not a single one of these folks that I talked to didn't have a story about someone in my family was killed uh, by Muslim militants or some other radical group. Not a child, not a father, not a mother, not a boy, not a girl. Someone in their family had been killed. And it just reminds me of the reality that though we can expect for great great feats of faith to transpire in our lives and we can hear autobiographies like people like, um, uh, um, uh, what's his name? I'm thinking of the missionary from, in, uh, from India 
Um, no, all of you are wrong. <laughs> Adoniram Judson, sorry. I was thinking of Adoniram Judson because Adoniram Judson was a missionary to the Burmese uh, early uh, 20th century, and he went there, and because of his missionary efforts where he was literally imprisoned, tortured, hung out in the rice paddies overnight where the mosquitoes would literally eat him alive. He eventually went, became so depressed in his missionary endeavors, he, went in, he virtually went insane. He burned all his sermons, all of his writings, went into the darkest depression. Only the salvation, he got gotten word from England that his brother had come to faith in Christ. Only that jolted him back into reality, and he came to his senses and came to serve the Lord again. He lost three wives, lost a child, died, and was cast over a boat in the middle of the ocean and left a legacy of 3,000 planted Baptist churches all over Burma. Do you think he'll regret it in eternity? No way. So I give examples like that, and we can turn to many, many examples, different missionaries. John Patton, we can turn to, we can turn to Hudson Taylor, we can turn to many missionaries like that, and missionaries that are alive today of people doing extraordinary things, and God does extraordinary things. I used to live in a ministry house in Southern California, and it was my job to kind of run the grounds and keep the grounds there. These were men that were being prepared for the ministry. It was a a ministry school I went through, and I'll never forget, there was a young man that came to that ministry house. He had been ripped out of a drug house, and the day after he was ripped out of a drug house by the pastors of a church, Right after that, the church was, or the, the house was raided. Everybody in the house went to jail, including his girlfriend, except for him. God spared him. And I saw that young man taken by God and taken from that place in his life. And now he, he, God shot him out like a rocket. And now he's a missionary in Kenya. God can do great things. Through his people. I don't want us to look upon a text like this and look upon this with some sort of sentimentality and think, oh, wasn't that incredible what God did back then? I'm saying that, that we serve the God of the living, not the dead. That our God is able to move mountains, as it were. Jesus said, if you have just a cereal size corn, little tiny speck of faith, you're able to do the impossible as it were. And I know what that sounds like because we've all, sadly, we've all been exposed to the name it and claim it crowd that has completely perverted what faith is all about. But biblical faith, true, exegetical, faithful to Scripture, faith, holy faith, still is powerful faith. Do you believe it? then we should weep for our children. We should weep for our family members. We should be in intense prayer for people that we love at work, at school, in our families, our neighbors. We should be in intense prayer for people that we want to see saved. And I'm convinced that we don't believe it as much as we should. But this text before us is reminding us. Notice what the author of Hebrews is doing. He is ministering to a persecuted church And he's reminding them now, we could almost say that verse 30 can begin like this. Don't forget that by faith, right? Verse 32. 
He says, don't forget that by faith, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets, by faith, they conquered kingdoms and performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Don't forget what faith enables us to do. And this is a church that has been bombarded by Jewish influence to loosen their grip on the new covenant so as to think that if they just go back to some of the Jewish expressions of the old covenant, then maybe they will have a more secure covenant standing with God and make it to the eschaton. And the author of Hebrews says, no, something better has come for us. Therefore, Do not throw away your reward. What's your reward? Faith in Christ alone. What's the reward? Solus Christus. That's the reward. That's what he's calling them to. Now, obviously, each individual, I remember Pastor Chris telling me, I think it was Chris saying, is Pastor Miller going to do every single name in chapter 11 of Hebrews? Yeah, we're going to be here for 10 years. We're going to be here. And I understand what you mean. There's a, this is a litany of praise and praiseworthy examples. Well, the very first one that's given to us here is Gideon. But look at the expression. Before we get to Gideon, look at the expression because this is the way that you and I ought to reflect on our legacy of faith. A godly, holy legacy of godly men and godly women. We should have this same emotional upheaval within ourselves for time will fail me the author says i love that because sometimes in the bible the rhetorical devices that are found in the greek text and in hebrew too but they give us a little insight into the emotion of the author this is the author saying oh i could go on and on with how good God is to His people. Let me show you example after example. And that's the way that we should approach the Bible. Oh, there's so many rich examples for me in Scripture. So we should have that same sort of emotional attachment to the Word of God and to these wonderful, wonderful instances of faith. But the first one of this of these is Gideon. Now, Gideon's important for one reason. Because Gideon, he was one of the judges and one of the leaders of of Israel. And interesting what uh, the author of Hebrews is doing. Right after going from Jericho to Rahab, which is the book of Joshua, now he's moving on to the book of Judges. So he's kind of going chronologically in a sense. Not 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 in a strict sense. He's He's got a loose grip on the chronology. You know that. Why? Well, because he lists David before Samuel. So you know he has, he doesn't have a, he's not trying to be very clerical here as it were he's just he's just recounting this but he is following this basic chronology going from joshua now to judges and in judges well we know what's going on in the book of judges in the book of judges the children of israel have come upon a time as judges says where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and what what happened was that the nation went into complete and total spiral and disarray So much so that they had to find a leader in a woman named Deborah. 
which was actually a shame on the nation. There were no strong, righteous men to stand up and lead the nation. So God rose up a godly woman named Deborah and shamed all the men. (laughs) Put them in their place. Well, guess what? During this time, Gideon is one of the, the judges that presides over Israel. And Gideon is important because he reminds us of what it means to be in oppression and in conflict. And also, what it means when the people of God forget God. When they forget His miracles, when they forget His deeds, when they forget His power, uh, you may want to turn a finger over to the book of Judges because we'll interact with it here and there. Judges chapter 6, um, beginning of verse 12, is Gideon is tasked with fighting the Midianites. But listen to the words and listen to the context of Gideon. As the angel of the Lord appeared to him, said to him, Lord... The Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of of, of Midian. What's so important about this, folks? I want to just maybe a point of hermeneutics here. That what happens nationally, corporately, historically, to a nation, i.e. Israel, is now personalized to the individual believer. So what you find is passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Apostle Paul says numerous times, three different times, he tells the Christians in the church, look to the nation. So that what happens on a national scale is actually now meant to be Uh, brought down from the corporate level to the individual level so that every one of us individually can glean and grow from the example that we have set forth with for us in the nation Israel. I mean, have you ever felt this way, the way that Gideon expressed here? Why then has all of this happened to us? Have you ever thought like that? Why is God allowing this to come into my life? Has God abandoned me? The psalmist is full of psalms where David and other psalmists are crying out to God saying, Why have you abandoned me? It's a remarkable thing to to look into the emotional appeal of... people like the psalmist and understand that this now relates to you and I. That we can have this intimate relationship with God. But remember, as 1 Corinthians says, these things are written for our example. These are not written to cause despair. These are written to cause comfort. To be reminded God is faithful to His people. And so what happens? What happens is that Gideon is is set apart by God to overthrow the Midianites and the Amalekites. Gideon's conquests, where he literally conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, really is something of a reenactment of what happened in Jericho, where God asked Jer- uh, uh, Israel to do something that flew against all conventional wisdom in circling the city seven times and praising God so that the walls of Jericho came falling down. Not really the type of warfare you think a 
a, 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 you know, a wise general would pretty much set out to strategize. But that is God's way. That is God's way. Well, he does it with Gideon as well. In Gideon and Judges chapter 7, you know, God tells Gideon, look, this victory is going to be had with 300 men. It's going to be 300 against thousands. 300 men against thousands. And what's more, they're not armed with swords and spears and shields and battering rams. He arms them with trumpets and pitchers filled with torches. <laughs> the paradox is truly ironic because, as I, I like what John MacArthur said here, he says, only a fool would have attempted such a courageous approach to the battle apart from God's direction and power. But from the perspective of faith, only a fool would not attempt such a thing when he has God's direction and power. That's right. God is looking at Gideon and everybody else and saying, what are you waiting for? I gave you direction. <laughs> Take up your pitcher and your, and your torch. What are you waiting for? Blow the trumpets and shout with praise and you will watch the walls come down. Now, Again, we can stay on every single one of these examples all day. But let's move on quickly. Now, Barak is another example of God's desire to work through the faith of his people in such a way that everybody will be stripped from boasting. Now, again, Barak here is working in conjunction with Deborah to overthrow the Canaanites. And what happens is, of course, is that God gave them a promise that the king of the Canaanites, Javan, would be given into their hands. See, God gave a promise, and this is Judges chapter 4, that he would overthrow the king of the Canaanites, Javan, and their, their, their most powerful feared warrior, Sisera. But once again, God chose to do it in a way that flew against all conventional wisdom. What did he do? In fact, he gave a promise. He said... Uh, well, actually, Deborah is going to convey the word of the Lord to Barak and tell him, look, this is the way God is going to do it. You, she goes on to say, you will not get any of the glory. Look at uh, Judges 4, verse 9. It says, I will surely go with you, because he asks her to go with me, accompany with me to the battle and to, to help me overthrow these people. And she says, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And indeed, later on, what happens? Sisera, this great Canaanite warrior, is delivered in the hands of a woman who stuck a tent peg through his temple and nailed him to the ground while he slept. <gasps> Nobody got the glory for that, except for God. God did it the way He wanted to do it. God and His ways are much higher than our ways. God doesn't choose to work in the way that seems right to you. And neither does he ask you permission to do it this way. Why has God allowed this to come in? Well, we're told right here, so that the honor will not, let's change it up here, the honor will not be ours on the journey. God chooses to work in your life in such a way that the honor will not be yours on the journey. He puts us in positions of desperation. Uh, look, the Apostle Paul was 
completely aware of this. And he knew that God delighted to work in weakness. Uh, what does the text in Hebrews say? He says, it says here in verse 34, from weakness were made strong. Oh, that's a principle that you can find all over the New Testament. For example, Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Who would have ever thought God would lead this way? And Paul says, Acts 20, verse 22, Behold, I am bound by the Spirit. I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of His grace. What is Paul telling the church? The church is saying, don't go to Jerusalem. Don't you know what they're going to do to you there? And the Apostle Paul is saying, I am bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem. And he has already assured me ahead of time that when I arrive, bonds and afflictions await me. Why are you going to that country? Don't you know what can happen to you over there? I had a pastor friend sent out a missionary. His father showed up at his office, ran into the office, got right into the pastor's face and says, anything happens to my son, I will kill you. Now, it makes no sense whatsoever to the world. But when God calls and when God has placed a a, a calling upon a man and a woman's life to go into the hard places of the world, we transcend the laws of common sense and conventional wisdom and we obey the calling of God no matter how foreign, no matter how curious, no matter how downright foolish it looks in the eyes of the world. We obey anyway. Why do you give your money to church? You don't even make that much money. Wow. What? Right? Why are you opening up your house to that family to stay with you? You don't have the room and you don't even have that much food in the fridge. <laughs> See, we are called to do otherworldly things just like the people of old. Oh yeah, you know, we may not be heading out to slay a, to slay a, a, a giant, uh, to throw a javelin through somebody, but we are, st- we are still called to live principally the same. Let's move on to another pivotal example, and that's Samson. Now Samson is probably best known for his moral failures, his sins, but in Hebrews he is a symbol of faith unashamedly. No doubt Samson was immature, sensual at times, irresponsible with God's power, but nevertheless, there is no evidence that Samson ever wavered at the calling of God because God had called him. Now, turn with me in your Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 13, just so we can see uh, this calling that is placed upon this man. Judges 13, beginning in verse 2, it says, There was a certain man of Zorah, the family of the Danites, 
whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no, ch- no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, we know that Samson wavered off the path grotesquely. But at the end of the day, through weakness, Samson was a glimmering uh, example of how through weakness he was made strong. God brought him low. He brought him so low that Samson, the great mighty Samson, the man that could tear a lion and tear his mouth to pieces with his bare hands, was reduced to the level of a scornful object of play, a sport for pagans in a pagan house. Wow. And it was down there in the in the in the dungeon of his sin and his misery and in the darkness of his blindness that he calls upon the Lord. And what does God do? You know what he does. You know the Sunday school story. He brings the house down, baby. I don't know that if Samson would have not been brought so low had he ever recognized the true source of his power. I don't know that if God does not bring us low sometimes that we will ever recognize where the checkbook comes from. Where does the paycheck come from? Where do the resources come from? Where does the bank statement really come from? Where does the car payment really come from? Well, it all comes from God. But He has to bring us down to the point sometimes as Peter. Remember Peter? Do you love me? You know that I love you. Do you love me? He got sad. You know I love you, Lord. Peter, do you love me? You know everything. Stop telling me what you can do for me and recognize that I can see right through you, buddy. And just acknowledge that you are weak and frail and have nothing to offer. You see, the culmination of that statement in, in the Gospel of John is literally a culmination of series of statements of Peter where Peter, you know Peter, I'll die for you. Right? Peter, it's always me first. Give me the sword, I'll cut off his ear. Right? Let me do it. <laughs> and then Jesus has to bring him to the point where he can, like Jacob... He has to, he has to take out his hip. He's gotta, he's gotta hobble the, the guy before he recognizes all you can do, Peter, and your proper place in the universe, Peter, is for you to simply cling to me. Then I will bless you. Samson was brought low. He was made weak before he was made strong. And so what, what, what does the book of Hebrews say to a persecuted church that collectively is being brought weak? I mean, that is really weak. The seizure of your property? See, I, to me, it takes me a minute to get this. 
You mean they're confiscating our SUVs? I think that would wake everybody in this room up instantly. You heard what? They took the pastor's house away? Why? Because he's a Christian. This is what I'm talking about. This is where Hebrews is at. The seizure of their property. They're plundering their property. People are being arrested for the faith. And therefore, God has them right where He wants them. And then God can speak power and faithfulness and encouragement into their lives. Let me just echo the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, a persecuted people will cling to that promise. Right? A comfortable people will cling to the promises about money and possessions and all that. But if you're under persecution, you want to hear God is going to overthrow our enemies. And what does Hebrews say? Hebrews says Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of power. What is He doing now? Now He is simply waiting until all of His enemies become a footstool for His feet. What does, a, what does Samson teach us? We are in need of a stronger Nazarene who is more righteous and who will overthrow the enemies of God. Don't let me get started on typology and all that good stuff. But it's there. It's there. What about Jephthah? What did Jephthah do? Well, again, Jephthah was the ninth judge over the people of Israel. And in Judges chapter 11, he made a very foolish vow. But the foolish vow simultaneously told us that Jephthah was a man of character. That Jephthah was a man of his word. That he made a covenant, he made a vow before God, and he was, re- he was going to fulfill it no matter what it costs. Whether it costs his daughter his life, whether it costs his daughter perpetual virginity, because that is a, um, that's a hot theological discussion there. That is a thorny theological issue. What, 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 what actually transpired with Jephthah's daughter? Was she killed for her because of this foolish vow? Because he, t- he said he was going to sacrifice whatever walked through the door first, right? Well, I think I'd take the latter and, if you want to hear, I think, the best discussion that I've read on that, you have to read the commentary in the Old Testament by Keelan Dillich, their 10-volume commentary, but their commentary on the book of Judges where they deal with this whole issue and they focus in on the words where it says there in Judges that she never knew a man. So as he sacrificed his daughter, he sacrificed her, 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 uh, her fertility. She was barren for the rest of her life. But the, the, the whole issue is, is that, is that Jephthah too, by the Spirit of God, this weak man that made this foolish vow was used by God to conquer kingdoms, perform acts of righteousness, and to obtain promises. Haven't you made foolish mistakes? And yet God uses the foolish things of this world. He uses us despite our many foolish things that we do. If Jephthah is not there, I mean, where do we go? Thank God, God uses foolish people who make very bad mistakes in their life. Don't you think the mistake that Jephthah made, don't you think that haunted him for the rest of his life? Absolutely. But Hebrews is telling us by faith, he still conquered and was victorious. Now David and Samuel of course, need no introduction. Their lives are actually kind of intertwined throughout. 
But you know David. Oh, the stories of David. How does, how does David arouse faith to swell up in our hearts when we think of David who, 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 who cast down his enemy? Oh, you remember that, right? Israel, too scared, too frightened. Nobody would go up against Goliath. Too big, too strong, too scary. And David says, yeah, I'm a shepherd boy. Everybody knows that about me. But one time I was out in the field and a bear and a lion tried to take one of my sheep. And he says, I killed both of them. He says he grabbed the lion by his beard, by his beard. What? First <laughs> Samuel chapter 17, verse 36, verse 36, uh, David says this. He says, your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. By faith, David's zeal overthrew God's enemies. David, again, is also a reminder to us of the believer's emotional appeal to God's loving kindness, to His goodness. If you want, I welcome, I invite you to turn up uh, uh, Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is a wonderful example of a man who by faith was strengthened by God to overcome an overwhelming struggle of faith. This is a true battle cry because it's a battle cry that depends wholly and completely upon the Lord. Psalm 18 says, The Lord lives. Verse 46. Psalm 18.46 says, The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. And exalted be the God of my salvation. The God who executes vengeance for me. And subdues people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you, you lift me above those who rise up against me. You, you rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to the king and he shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his, well, the Hebrew is descendant or seed singular forever. We know who David's ultimate singular seed is. But these people were challenged and they faced adversaries by virtue of the fact that they were aligned politically with Israel. They were judging Israel. They were monarchs. They were part of the the theocracy of Israel. But notice what the author of Hebrews says next. He throws in not a person, right? You see that? He throws in not a person, but a category. After naming David and Samuel, he says, and the prophets, plural. So now he's saying this whole category of people, and we can think, of course, of Daniel, who, because of the angel of the Lord, he was able to shut the mouth of lions. Of course, Daniel's friends, Meshach, uh, Shadrach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace and therefore quenched the power of fire. And example after example can be given. I love what 
Daniel's friends said to the king of Babylon, Our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then they go on to say, But if he does not, we still will not bow down and serve you. Don't you love that kind of edgy Christianity? Amen! We will not bow under any circumstances. We trust in God. Come what will. We will not waver. We will not compromise. We will not become... Weak, but only strong. Uh, it says in verse 34, By faith they escaped the edge of the sword. Back in Hebrews, From weakness were made strong. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Peter O'Brien says this, It says they escaped the edge of the sword which marked the experiences of David from Saul, from Absalom, while the prophets such as Elijah escaped from the, from Jezebel, Elisha from Jehorab, and Jeremiah from Jehoiakim. All over the Old Testament, there are examples of God's people overcoming by faith. Now this same venture of perseverance in hope is ours in Christ. Now this is what I want to do now. I want to transition. I want to transition again from the historical if you would, to the spiritual. Because this is what I want to teach you, and, and this is a, a, a really important point in theology. That is, that what all of the Old Testament things and, and all of the events that transpired there, that what they do is they serve the purpose of the new. In other words, it's not the old order that we're waiting for. The old order is preparing the way for the new order. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews is all about? He takes away the first covenant in order to put in a new covenant, a better covenant, as it says. And so I would remind you who fall into the same category as these men that, that, that we're going to face adversaries, that we are going to face suffering, maybe even martyrdom. So I remind you, you are in a superior position than they were. According to the book of Hebrews, what is the operative word? Better. Write that down. Make a mental note of it. Whatever you have to do. The operative word for the book of Hebrews is the word better. Let me give you an example. Jesus has a better name than angels. Chapter 1, verse 4. We have a better hope. Chapter 7, verse 19. We have a better covenant than they than, than what had come through Moses. Chapter 7, verse 22. While in the Old Testament saints were striving for a physical land, we overcome for the sake of, as the author says, better promises. Chapter 8, verse 6. While they labored under the old priestly order and sacrifices, the uh, Hebrews 9.23 says, we have better sacrifices. That's a plural, plural way of talking about the singular sacrifice of Christ. While many of the military campaigns of Israel were fought in the possession of Canaan, we have a better possession one that endures, chapter 10, verse 34. All in all, in the new covenant, we are presented with better promises to strive for, a better country to possess. Our goals are loftier than the theocracy of Israel, loftier than the monarchy of David, loftier than the sacrifices of the Levitical Code. 
The author of Hebrews summarizes the redemptive supremacy of Jesus Christ as he looks back upon the history of all redemption. He summarizes and he goes all the way back through every epical horizon of the Bible all the way back and says, the blood, the blood of Jesus speaks. I would like to say, it preaches of Better things than the blood of Abel. What is the author of Hebrews trying to show us? Jesus Christ is supreme. In every way, it is better. Therefore, because we, like Peter says, having such precious promises. That's right. We have such precious promises. We can be made strong out of weakness. That's new covenant talk. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. I mean, this is in a sense the penultimate statement on the matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 beginning in verse 9. It says, my grace is what? The all-sufficient grace of God. What does it do? For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore. Do you find yourself talking like this? Christian, if you are a Christian, do you find yourself talking like this? I will rather boast about my weakness. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. Weaknesses, insults, distress, persecutions, difficulties. For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, according to Scripture, then you are strong. Exhibit A. Think of our sister Crystal right now laying in a rehab center. Rehabilitating herself physically from yet another surgeries. For those of you that don't know, our dear church member, friend, sister in Christ, Crystal Singh, she's had about 80 surgeries. She was a crack baby. She was born with all of her insides outside. She has had pretty much everything you can have. Cancer, lupus. I mean, it just goes on and on. The doctors look at her sh- her, her medical sheet. They walk in and they expect to find a corpse. <laughs> And then they walk in and go, how in the world are you looking so good and acting like you're so happy? (laughs) Right? And she's naturally a happy person. But let me tell you something about Crystal Singh. I had the glorious honor of watching her not only come to Christ, but baptizing her. And let me tell you something about our sister Crystal Singh. She has matured in the faith. She She was talking to me one day, and she actually used the word redemptive history. Wow! This is fellowship. But let me tell you something else about Crystal. She is a flaming evangelist. (laughs) I walk into that hospital office or whatever, the hospital room where she's at. She's passing out trash. She's witness to everybody. All the nurses already know about Christ and Jesus and everything else. I mean, I get them like, there's nothing for me to do. Trisha will find something to do. But uh, it's done. Everybody's been witnessed to. Who gets the glory for that? Not 
not that 30-something-year-old beautiful girl that actually looks like she's about 16. Anyway, but not Krista's meek, humble young lady laying there on a hospital bed, can't even move, is barely physically making it. You think she gets the glory for all that? Not, not in a million years. God is telling us there, God is saying, there is a, there is a principle here at work. There is a spiritual principle at work where the power of God delights to be perfected in weakness. What does Paul say? The intimate knowledge of Christ that he's pursuing. Oh, that I may know Him and the fellowship of His suffering. See, there is a sense in which our faith, our communion, our union with Christ, or, or, or definitely our communion with Christ, deepens and becomes enriched when we are weak, when we are made to suffer, when we go through distress, trial, tribulation, persecution, difficulties. So bring it down to the very common level because I want everyone in here to think to themselves, this is me, this is me. I don't need to wait for persecution to come, for this to be part of my life, practically speaking. You raising a teenager today? Right? You working on a marriage issue today? Right? You got somebody at work that just, man, it's just a, like a thorn in your side? Right? You got financial issues that you're thinking about even as I was preaching this sermon? We got difficulties for which we need the same faith that moves mountains and brought down the walls of Jericho. And God will bring us to a point where at last we acknowledge that the river of faith reminds us of its wellspring. In other words, we go back to the source of faith. Be careful that we do not personify and deify faith. The power of faith. Faith's powerful. Oh, he's a man of faith. Faith, some people... (laughs) They almost act like faith is God. You ever, you ever heard that, right? No, 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 no. Faith is nothing without God. Faith is a gift. Faith is the invisible hand that is able to reach out and touch God. That's it. But without the object and the source of faith, our faith is futile. And so never forget, it's not your great faith that did anything. It is the source and the object of faith that gets all the glory, all the credit for everything. Let me end on this, and I know I'm I'm going long, but I I don't care. Um, Just truthfully. Let, let Let me just end on this point. Because I thought when I was done with this sermon, I I almost closed it, my studies were over, and I thought, wait a minute. I'm missing a very important point. This is meant to produce hope for people whose faith is weak. What's the implication of that? Your faith, your faith can be increased. Your faith must be sustained by God. 
and your faith needs to be cultivated, what this says to us is that there's hope for us. How do you feel today? Where are you at? Are you confused in your walk presently? Are you in a day's sort of spiritual blur? Are you in a place of lovelessness? Cold? You don't really feel anything? Are you in a place where you're overcome more with anxiety and with fear than faith? Has the spiritual disease of apathy gripped your heart? No zeal for God? Are you bitter or disillusioned in your life? Things didn't turn out the way that you wanted them to turn out? See, see, what this tells me is that faith can be strengthened. There is hope here. I met a young man uh, many, many years ago. He came to the settled conclusion he was suicidal. I got a chance to minister to this person. He was suicidal, came to the conclusion, God is done with me. God is finished with me. I don't have anything to offer. I've messed up so much. My walk is so messed up. Everybody thinks I'm a joke. And I have nothing to offer. And I told him that is a lie from the pit of hell. And I'll never forget, this individual went and he got away for hours to seek the Lord And to make a long story short, he came back renewed and a little subjective here, but he said, I believe God is telling me I'm not done with you. Repent and seek my face and you will live. And let that be an encouragement to you. I don't know where you are right now in your faith. I don't know where you stand with your spiritual walk. I don't know how healthy Or how sick you are. But the encouragement of Hebrews is that faith can be strengthened. The roots of our endurance can go deep into the soil of biblical truth. And we can, no matter what, by the grace of God, flourish again. Father, Father, I pray for every person in this room trusting in you if they're there if they're discouraged right now if they are in that spiritual daze they're sort of confused they don't know who they are in Christ there is no love they are loveless cold stagnant apathetic and lukewarm oh God By your Spirit, would you be pleased to move upon such a person? Be the lifter of their head. Show them from where their hope comes from, where their strength is found. Be their shield. Be their defense. And for every one of us here, help us to be vigilant about our faith. As Jude says, help us to keep ourselves in the love of God. We need this, oh God. We need this desperately. So strengthen your children, I pray. Christ's name, amen.